You're listening to the Freedom House Podcast. We're a house that will empower you in your walk with Christ to get free, live free, and set others free. This is our Sunday service series. For more information, go to FHUS.org. Enjoy. Amen and amen. There's a new series called Living by Faith. And the first one is By Bestowing Honor. Say, By Bestowing Honor. You know, at the end of the age, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, specifically verse 2, out of six foundational truths, I've always drilled this in this house, it's foundational or it's elementary. These are elementary truths, the last two out of the six, which means one-third of all doctrine actually deals with end times. It's the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And the writer of the book of Hebrews says that these are elementary. These are the ABCs of the Christian faith. So I want you to take that into consideration. The resurrection of the dead, which is that which is going to come at the end of the age when Jesus returns, as well as eternal judgment. Again, something that is going to happen at the end of the age. So you could say that one-third of basic doctrine, according to the book of Hebrews chapters, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, is actually eschatology or eschatological in its theology. Now, I know I just gave you a $3 word, but uh, you learned that for free. But what's very important about this is Jesus himself, and let me make this statement, there will be an epidemic at the end of the age. In fact, Jesus prophesies it in Matthew chapter 25. He prophesies about the end of the age in which judgment comes, in which he will begin, and it's the parable of the sheep and the parable of the what? Sheep and the goats. Okay. (laughs) An epidemic of failing to do two things. Number one, recognize and to be able to receive, listen, not God who is unseen, but to be able to recognize God in and through people here on the earth who is seen. And his judgment is going to come accordingly. In the book of Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, it says this. It says, the king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of these, the least, say the least. Notice it doesn't say the greatest. You know, it's easy for us to give honor to the greatest of these, give honor to pastors and to leaders and to those who we consider heroes within the faith. But we see here that says the least of these. So I want you to take a look around, look at your neighbor, look at the person behind you, in front of you, and who is the least amongst you? You know, the person that you gossiped about this week, the person that you slandered and talked about. Come on, are you here? Am I stepping on your toes already this early in the sermon? Come on, are you here? Surely I tell you whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. So it's talking about the believers. You did for me. Have you ever taken into consideration your attitude towards your brother and sister is your attitude towards Jesus? Yes. You see, I come from a classical Pentecostal background. I grew up in the assemblies of God and had certain uh, within that vein. And one of the things that, uh, especially even in the word faith, in which it got sometimes extreme in that, is we always remarked about our faith in God. Faith in God, faith in God. And it was always uh, unilateral. And we failed to understand that part of us having strong faith is also understanding of the brotherhood of the body of Christ and recognizing and discerning. You know, when Bishop was here last week, he remarked, he goes, man, you just got such great leaders that are here and there's such a level of maturity and everything like that. And so he was really, and he says he's probably one of the best, you know, and within, that he's seen within the church context. 
And of course, it's because of, you know, uh, building Bible colleges, et cetera, and, and building up people for ministry and that type of a thing. So obviously, that was the first decade of my life was raising up disciples, going to all the world. The Bible says, go out into all the world and make what? It doesn't say make converts. It says make disciples. We convert people to the end result that they're planted in the house of God. Jesus isn't coming back for converts. He's coming back for a church. Oh, come on. Are you here? In Matthew uh, verse 25, verse 45, he says, he, uh, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for the one of these, the least of these you did not do to me. Okay. And what is the context here? Jesus is talking about that people will come before him and Jesus will say, man, I was sick. He didn't visit me. He didn't heal me. I was in prison. You didn't visit me. I was thirsty. You didn't give me any water. I needed shelter. You didn't provide anything for me. And it looks like it's almost works-based. But the point that he's trying to make is you fail to recognize and discern the body that was amongst you. And he said, what you did not do to the least of these, you didn't do it unto me. Did we ever take into consideration that our attitude towards the church is our attitude towards Jesus? Come on, are you here? First John talks about this. And what she says, you know, he talks about, you know, you say that you love God who is unseen, but yet you hate your brother who is seen. If I can extrapolate that and say, how can you sit there and say you have faith in God when you don't even see the treasures that are in earthen vessels that are amongst us and whom God is using to be able to speak and his iron sharpens iron, be able to recognize as well as to receive. It's not just good to recognize. You can recognize and reject. You have to be able to recognize and be able to receive. And I think if there's one thing that's a strength personally in my life, and of course I don't say this, is being able to recognize and discern gifts and be able to recognize treasures. And as, as Bishop said, well, I think people have the ability to recognize it. They just don't know how to mine it like you do. It's the ability to be able to look at somebody and discern gifts, discern callings, discern what God wants to be able to do and raise them up accordingly into the call of God. I don't know, maybe it's a gift, but I believe you can cooperate with the gift. How many know that even the Apostle Paul talks about with the grace that was given to me, I labored with all the more that which was given to me. This is when he was talking about his apostolic grace. He began to say, I'm the least of all the apostles, yet it was he who labored all the more abundantly with the grace that was given to him. So you can labor with the grace of God or you can resist the grace of God. Come on. May we be a people that have the ability to cooperate with the grace of God. Did we place our faith in God in the unseen by recognizing, receiving him in the seen realm? Again, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, I alluded to this. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Seems, looks like Paul ran into an issue of recognizing and receiving himself uh, in the seen realm, yet claimed to be serving the unseen God. Remember that in Acts chapter 9? When the Lord knocked him off of his high horse, he said this, Who are you, Lord? He didn't even know. <laughs> yet he claimed to be serving him. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is why I believe this is one of the most under-the-radar theological precepts that we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. Everywhere from the Reformation on, there was emphasis on justification by faith, which obviously we wholeheartedly receive in that understanding and that revelation that the just live by faith. 
But I want you to take into consideration that when he was knocked off of his horse, the beast that, he, uh, that was carrying him, I want you to consideration that the first theological precept is he said that he's Jesus, that he is Lord. But secondly, he had a revelation of the church. Why? Did, G, did Paul actually go up into the third heavens to the right hand of the Father? Did he actually slap Jesus, curse Jesus, flog Jesus? No, he didn't do it. How was he persecuting Jesus when Jesus said, you're persecuting me? And I want to remind you that Jesus didn't say, it's like you're persecuting me. He said, you actually are persecuting me. What was he doing? The Bible is very clear at this point that he was going, he was giving consent to persecution, he, uh, uh, going into the houses, arresting the believers, uh, persecuting the believers. And when Jesus arrives, he didn't say, it's like you're persecuting me when you do this on earth. He said, you actually are doing it to me. Did you ever take into consideration your behavior, your attitudes towards one another in the house of God is your attitude towards Jesus? Please, please don't disgrace the Lord in your witness saying that you love God, but you have bad attitudes and bad attitudes towards the church. Do you know it's very popular to have the church as a whipping post in today's culture? Oh, the church is this, the church is that, the church is this. I want you to think the next time you say that Jesus is this, Jesus is that, Jesus is this, you're slandering Jesus. Sometimes as pastors, we can sit there and we can mark it on people's offense. The church has offended you, come. And all the people that come to the church, listen, I guarantee you, you'll have a bunch of people that are offended coming to your church. Yeah, that's right, the church offended me. I was one of those who actually was probably brought into the church through a spirit of offense and didn't even realize it. God got a hold of me when I realized I had an attitude towards the church. I had my long hair with my earrings coming in there, you know, listening to my Christian rock and roll music. And I remember going in and there was a little old Pentecostal lady who came up to me and gave me a handshake and she was looking conservative. And here I was with my leather jacket thinking I was all that. And the church is against people like us. That was my mentality. And she came up to me little, I could sense the glory of God on her, but I had a, my bad attitude that I was carrying because the church is against us. And I just went and walking by and just totally didn't even give her consideration. The Holy Spirit arrested me afterward and said, how dare you have an attitude towards a woman of God like that? Arrested me on that. And I realized that while I was sitting there flogging the church with my bad attitude, I was the one with a bad attitude. While I sat there and flogged the church and said, the church is this and the church is that, I realized I was the one with the problem. That what I did to her, I actually did to Jesus. Okay? You still love me? Again, so powerful is Paul's revelation of recognizing and receiving the unseen God in the seen realm. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29 to 31, for those who eat and drink without discerning what? The body of Christ. Say the body of Christ. It's not like it is the body of Christ. He says it's actually the body of Christ. Jesus. It says without recognizing they're discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning, say discerning. What is that? Recognizing. If we were more recognizing with regards to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. So Paul is saying, with regards to the communion table, which is simply having a meal, there were those who were coming in and they were coming before everybody else was and they were eating and drinking and stuffing themselves, not concerned with those. And something as simple as just having bad manners 
at a meal. He sits there and he is communicating a theology that there's judgment that came upon some. And he actually indicates and says people became sick in their body. Take that into consideration. He says, don't you have homes to go to in which you can eat? You sit there and you go stuff your face and you do all these things and you don't even wait. You show what? No honor. <laughs> but yet we got strong faith in God. Look at all the things God's doing in my life. But I sit there and I listen to you back talk and speak uh, innuendos by which it clearly shows that there's offense and gossip and slander and all these things. You don't know how to behave yourself in the house of God. But yet you got strong faith and you're talking about all the things unilaterally God in the unseen world is doing. But I see no evidence of you giving honor within the house of God amongst those who are seen. Come on, are you here? And we haven't even got off of my slide yet. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote that. Why? Because he had a revelation when he was knocked off of his high horse that he was actually persecuting Jesus. So this framed his theology. In the book of Ephesians, verse 25 to 27, husbands, love your wives just as what? Christ, what? Gossip and slandered and spoke out against the church. No, it doesn't say that. That was a joke. I was just, somewhat. what it says. He loved the church. And he gave himself up for her. Who have you given yourself up for? Shows the level of commitment that Jesus had towards that which is seen. Don't sit there and say you have a commitment towards God, but you don't have a commitment towards that which is seen. Come on, are you here? The church and gave himself up for her. To do what? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through what? The word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. But wasn't this what the early church, the very body of Jesus, was to walk in, recognizing and receiving? In the book of Acts, Luke clearly outlines this. In chapter 2, verse 44, this is uh, the day of Pentecost. Afterwards, there's preaching. It says, all the believers were to what? Together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, say every day. We only do it a couple times a week. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. What was that? That was a celebration. It says, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And this is a powerful point right here. And it says, and, say and. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Notice the emphasis isn't on the salvation. The emphasis on they were added to the local church. It says, and the Lord added. It doesn't say, woohoo, in American Western worldview, we think the end result is people getting saved. Not according to the early church. It was a segue into being planted. Why? Because Jesus is coming back for a church. This is why I say we're not to make converts, we're to make disciples. There is no such thing in the early church as you being saved and excommunicated or there being a division between salvation and you being planted in the local church. Doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. It exists in our independent Western world mindset, but not in the early church. That's why some people, they never will get victory because it's them and Jesus, I know. You and Jesus, and that's it. You and him in the unseen world, but you have no recognition. You fail to recognize and discern the body of Jesus because Jesus, who wants to answer you here, will answer you through treasures and gifts here on earth. Come on, are you here? 
All right, so now let's get off this slide right here, the title. We're going to look at Luke chapter 7, verse 1 through 10. You see that picture? Pretty cool picture, huh? He's a Roman. So we're going to look at a centurion. And we're going to read through this passage of Scripture. Then we're going to go back and we're going to unpack this thing. Amen? You still love your pastor? Good. All right. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all these to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. Say Capernaum. This was his ministry headquarters. It was right there next to the Sea of Galilee. It says, there a centurion servant whom his master valued was sick and about to die. Continues on in verse 3. The centurion heard of Jesus. Say, heard of Jesus. Remember, faith cometh by hearing. It says, and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Verse 6 and 7 says, so Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. Verse 8, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Then it continues on in verse 9 and 10. When Jesus heard this, they heard this. It says, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following, he said, I tell you, I have not even found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent, returned to the house and found the servant well. Now, let's go back to verse 1. I want to unpack this line by line. When Jesus had finished saying all these things to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion servant with whom his master valued was sick and about to die. The first thing that I want to share with you and show you is that, number one, this was not a Jew. He's a Roman. He is a Gentile. There are natural hostilities between the Jews and the occupying powers of Rome. There's hostilities. In fact, even within Jesus's ministry staff, they had those who were of the zealots. There was Simon the what? The zealot. These are those who I would call them almost like American Second Amendment guys. Come on, are you here? They believed wholeheartedly in the law of Moses in which it was declared that you are to be, you are my special possession. I will make you a nation. You are not to be subservient to other nations. It's kind of like our constitution. We are not to be submitted. It's kind of like the law of Moses. We have our constitution. We hold by it. And just as the zealots had the swords, we have our 2A. Come on, are you here? You ain't going to take it. We're to be, we're, gonna, we're our own sovereign nation. Come on, are you here? We have modern day zealots today, just like we did uh, 2,000 years ago. And Jesus had those on his ministry staff. And so you have to understand that here is an occupying power, a servant of the occupying power. And we see here that this man, though he is an occupying power or a servant of, uh, of the occupying 
power that Jesus, uh, that, that we see here, that uh, this centurion has an understanding and he's actually humble and sympathetic towards the needs of Israel. Something that he did not have to do. He's the occupying power. He's the one who's large and in charge. He doesn't have to build synagogues. He doesn't have to be gracious. And when he does do these things, it's going to be because he doesn't want to stir up ruckus and stir up the powers of the authority that are above him because they might remove him from his position. But all that being said, to go a step further and actually go and actually build synagogues shows the sympathetic nature. So that when he comes to Jesus and he has a servant and he has concern for the servants, in order to have honor, you must have preceded by that humility. Write that down. Many people think humility is a personality disposition. There's nothing further from the truth. Some people can look at bold people such as myself and say, ah, he's so arrogant. Yes, I'm just like Moses. You know, when it says, Moses was the meekest man. Guess who wrote that? Yeah, it was Moses. <laughs> Moses wrote about himself. He was the meekest man. How arrogant can you be at that? Come on, are you here? Of course he was the meekest man. Because meekness is not a personality temperament. Oh, he's phlegmatic. Oh, he's melancholy or this or whatever it is. It's when the word of the Lord comes to you, what do you do with the word of the Lord? David himself, how many would agree he was very bold? How many of you agree that he was used very powerfully? He was a warrior king. And yet even as a brothers accused him of being arrogant, uh, we know what you did. You just came out to see the fight. So this is why I say you have to understand humility is not a personality profile or a personality temperament. It's what happens when the word of the Lord comes to you. What do you do when the word comes to you? Do you allow it to humble you? Do you receive that? What is your response to when the spirit of God speaks to you? That determines whether you're humble or not. One of the fascinating things too is we have within the scripture, within the Old Testament, obviously Jesus, James, and Peter talk about when you humble yourself, God will exalt you. The problem is, is we look at exalted people and accuse them of being prideful when we should assume, hmm, they're very exalted. Maybe they're very, very humble. See, that just threw you for your little, huh? Yeah, because you're so used to sitting there being a critic. Come on, are you here? And maybe that's why you're in a humble position. It's because you haven't learned how to humble. Listen, it's better to humble yourself than have the Lord humble you. It's better to fall on the rock rather than the rock fall on you. Are you here, church? You still love your pastor? So obviously he's very humble. In order to show honor, you always are a person who has to first be humble. The very nature of honoring somebody is you de-elevating yourself. So we should be looking for opportunities to humble ourselves in order to segue, in order to give honor. Even with our leadership team, I talked about honoring with the bishop. Not to narc on them or anything, but it's a simple principle. That when the bishop's here, we're there to pull on him. When he gets up, we get up. Do you know in the Levitical, in the law, it says that we are to, when, a, when an elder rises, we are to rise in respect to him? That means we're cognizant of the movement of elders. That means it's not just about, we're always talking about ourselves. It means when a bishop or someone of an elder, of a stature, of those who are gifted or those who God brings us, what do we do? We shut our mouth. 
and we listen. God gave us two ears, not two mouths. That means we are to listen more than we speak. If God wanted to reverse the order, he would have given us two mouths and one ear. And for some of you, I think you got two mouths and only one ear. Because you talk a lot more than you listen. But maybe that's why you don't have much wisdom. Just a thought. Do you still love your pastor? All right, good. So there was a centurion servant. So this is the character. This is the cultural context. And furthermore, listen very carefully. Jesus is called to who? The lost sheep of Israel. He's not called to the lost sheep of the Gentiles or the Gentile nations. He's actually not called to this person, and therefore he has no obligation to this man whatsoever. In fact, he's so in tune to what the father is saying that a woman who is a Canaanite, say Canaanite, she's not an Israelite. And again, Jesus is not called to the Canaanites. The Bible says, and we're going to look at this, this woman is crying out after Jesus and he ignores her. Why? Because I'm not called to you. Today's culture, we'd say, oh, this pastor is so rude. He gets so many texts, he ignores them. He gets emails, he doesn't respond until two days later. When I snapped my fingers, he didn't jump. Mm, Don't go there, honey. (laughs) Right? So this woman is ignored. So much so is she causing a ruckus that even the apostles are saying, could you please send her away because... She's sitting there screaming after after us, too. And then, of course, Jesus says two insulting, say two. Not one, two insulting statements to her. And she is what? Humbled and gives honor. Because of this. My point in this is Jesus had no obligation to them whatsoever because he was not called to them. He was called to the lost sheep of Israel. And we see here that this man of authority is a person who is humble and gives honor. In verse 3 and 5, the centurion heard of Jesus. Notice one. How does faith come? Faith cometh by hearing. What would he have heard that would have provoked him to send these people? That there's this man. They say he's the Messiah. Now, I want you to think about it. If you're a centurion and you're hearing that this, this guy who's healing and many people are saying he's the son of David. This is something in which a centurion, an occupying Roman soldier, would be concerned about like, oh, he could be a threat to me. Did you hear what I just said? Again, he's the, he's the servant of the occupying national power who's over Israel. And he hears about Jesus. And certainly, because listen, as he's casting out devils, what are the devils even saying? We know who you are. You're the Holy One of Israel. In other words, they're acknowledging he's the Messiah. And that was the talk in the town. The reason why he's got these powers is because he's the next king of Israel. Remember, you're the occupying power. You're a servant of Rome. So you might not be sympathetic towards this man because he actually might be not your job security. Are you here? And yet we see what his response is. He heard about Jesus. He would have heard about the healings. He could have potentially heard about how all those who came to him and touched him were made whole. He would have had faith that if he brought himself, 
his servant, which was healed, he would have been healed. But yet that's not what happened. Because he's a man under authority, he wants to give honor to Jesus. He recognizes and discerns and has the ability to be able to receive that which is upon Jesus, which is his healing virtue. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. In other words, they begged him. This man deserves to have you to do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So again, the centurion had heard about Jesus and acted accordingly. And what was the first act? As I stated, humility. You know, in the book of Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 6, it says this. In your relationships, and it says this, with one another, not with God. In your relationships with one another. In other words, not in the unseen in the, third, in, the, in the second heavens, in the third heavens, but in the first heavens amongst yourself, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ, who being very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. What did he do? He humbled himself. What's interesting is what proceeds in the verses after that. And then in addition to that, what does God do? God highly exalted him. You do the humbling, God does the exalting. What do we do in American culture? We climb the corporate ladder and so we try to exalt ourselves and we wonder why we always end up getting humbled. I don't have to climb anything. God's the one who puts me on an elevator, his elevator. I don't have to chase these things. I don't have to chase money. I don't have to. I'm a money magnet. It just comes to me. Why? Because I seek first his kingdom. Are you here? Humility. So we see in Philippians, the apostle Paul, who's penning this, he's talking about the humility that we must have and the behavior that we must have amongst amongst another. Number one, recognize in order to receive, you have to humble yourself. So he humbles. Yes, he's, he's the son of the living God. Of course, he's God incarnate. He's Yahweh incarnate. Of course, he is positionally with him. But what did he do? He humbled himself. And humility is a great attraction to the exalting power of God. This is why I say humility is not a personality temperament or a personality profile. It's a character issue regardless of personalities, regardless of temperaments, humility is a character issue. It means the character of humility, no matter what your disposition is, needs to be inside of you. Come on, are you here? This is the character of Christ, that he was humble. You must humble yourself in order, uh, in honor, in order to receive. We see in verse six and seven, So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Watch this, this is powerful. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Who is saying this? A master of Rome. He's used to giving orders in his big household. He's used to throwing parties. He's used to being 
the man that's large and in charge. And yet when he looks at Jesus and he hears about Jesus being the Messiah, the healing virtue that flows, he recognizes it and brings associations. I'm not even worthy for you to come into my house. Again, I want you to understand this is in a cultural context by which he's always the master of what's going on around him. And yet he says this powerful statement, I'm not even worthy for you to come into my house. That's how I recognize who you are. That's how I recognize how powerful you are. He didn't come and say, well, I've been doing all these things. I think you should do it. Didn't you hear? I built a synagogue. It would be in your best interest to do it. He did use manipulation tactics. You know, as a pastor, there's always people trying to do, pull manipulation tactics to try and get you to minister where they are. Well, I think you should be doing this, pastor. I think you should be doing this and doing that. It's like, well, no, God bless you, brother. <laughs> if you feel led to do it, you do it. I'm not feeling that leading. That's why there's diversity. We're not all cookie cutters like you. And I don't expect you all to be just like me. Come on, are you here? We show our arrogance when we impute what we think other people should be doing. Well, you're not the judge of his. He's the judge of his servants, not you. He didn't let you to be the judge of his servants in the body. Come on, are you here? Humility is not a recommendation, but a requirement. Write that down. Humility is not a recommendation. It's a requirement. This man is expressing humility when in no uncertain terms, he could have stood in his exalted position and executed orders accordingly and tried to manhandle and tried to make ministry happen on his behalf. Is this not what happened in the Old Testament? When Naaman, the Syrian general who had leprosy, right? He comes to the prophet after his servant tells him about Elijah, right? And he comes in all of his pomp and all the fanfare. And he was expecting to get the red carpet treatment by which he would come in here and he would do all these wonderful things because here's the Syrian general. And he just sends out a word, doesn't even greet him. And we know that Naaman's actually irritated by this because of what he says. I can't believe he did it this way. He should have, I thought he should have done it this way. I think he should have done it that way. So his sensibilities were offended because he thought ministry would happen his way. Always be careful in the church when you think ministry should be done your way. Because you're like a Bible character, naming the Syrian general. When you think someone should be laying hands on you to open up your eyes, you just might have someone spit on the ground, make mud, and put it in your eyes. Come on, are you here? So, of course, with name the Syrian general goes. And, and, and by the way, the instructions were not to go to the nice rivers, the beautiful rivers, the lush rivers. It was to go to the filthy river. Like, how dare? Oh, I'm a guess that you'd have me do that. It's like being a wealthy millionaire and you're used to staying at five-star and a diamond hotels. And someone says, no, here, we got a great place for you. It's a one-star. It's rat-infested and it's in Compton. You can stay there. <laughs> There's where we're going to put you. Don't you know who I am? Finally, he got some sense talked into him by someone who's humble 
and who has a servant's attitude, not just servant in position, but servant in heart. You can have, be positionally a servant, but it doesn't mean that that position has gotten in your spirit. Mm, some of you get that by next week. The reason why he wants you to be a servant is not so that he p- can positionally keep you as a servant. He wants you to have a servant's heart so that when he exalts you, you still have a servant's heart in your rulership. That's why some people don't rule. God doesn't want to put you in that because then you become your own Lord rather than continue to make him Lord, which you declared that he was when you were a servant. But all of a sudden things shifted and you dethroned him from your heart. And now you're on the throne in your rulership. And that's it. It's not his rulership. It's your rulership. Mm -hmm. So we see the expression of humility. Lord, don't trouble yourself. Notice he calls him Lord, not just rabbi. Notice the title. It wasn't about the title. It was about the position. Do you hear what I said? It's not about the external title, but it's about the position that he stands in. It's beyond that, recognizing and discerning the gift that was before him. Lord, don't trouble yourself or I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Verse 8. And then he begins to unpack this idea. For I myself am a man under what authority? So what is the expression of authority? The expression of authority comes with humility by you bestowing honor. And as this authority... I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. You see, he didn't just recognize authority. He honored authority. Write that down. He didn't just recognize authority. He honored authority. Recognizing a title is not good enough. You must receive and honor the authority of that title. Did you hear what I said? Let me say it again. Number one, he didn't just recognize authority. He honored authority. Number two, recognizing a title, which is often external. It is external. Is not good enough. You must receive and honor the authority of the title. Does that make sense? You have to be able to discern through the title. The title is just something that someone does, but you have to recognize and discern the office of that title in order to receive. Here's what Matthew says about this. Whoever welcomes or does what? Receives. It's not just recognized, but receives. Whoever receives a prophet. Watch this as just a good buddy. Just as a casual friend. No. Whoever welcomes a what? Prophet. Which means you have to actually recognize it, number one. This is what this person is. In order to be able to receive it. Your failure to receive it, correspondingly, you'll miss the next part. You won't be able to receive what you don't recognize. Are you here? 
I believe many of the things, the impartations, the things is because I had the ability when I got saved to be able to recognize, humble myself and honor myself before great men and women of God that God brought me before. It wasn't just me in my prayer closet praying 24 hours a day and, oh Lord, I just thank you and you know all these things. It was be able to recognize and discern the body of people that the Lord sent into my life and I was humbled by it and I gave honor to it. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a what? A prophet's reward. Whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Oftentimes we want rewards that come straight from the Lord when the Lord actually wants to give us rewards through human beings. And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about things that are actually more spiritual than that. Spiritual treasures. Those are the most important treasures that there are in life. How does it come? By recognizing. And not just recognizing, but receiving. Whoever welcomes a prophet, it doesn't say who recognizes, but receives as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Okay? And someone wants to come in. Do I have to call you pastor? No, you don't have to call me pastor. Just because I'm not into titles. Okay? You can call me by what, however you receive me. So I'm, if I'm not, if you don't recognize and you don't pull upon me standing in the office of a pastor, don't call me by the title. The title is irrelevant to you. To call me by a title, but not to receive me, you might as well not call me that. Are you all into those titles? No, we're all into the positions so that we can honor the Lord and be able to receive of the graces that he's freely given to us. See the difference? The world chases after titles. We should all about be seeking God and giving honor so that we can receive beyond the titles and be able to receive of the position. And in giving honor to one another, we have the ability to receive from the Lord. Does that make sense? Matthew chapter 10, and then it goes in verse 42, the next verse right here. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, notice this, little ones who is my disciple. Why does he, he doesn't say great ones. Remember they all argued? He says little ones. So who's the little ones amongst you? Come on, are you here? Notice what it said. And if anyone gives even a cup, of one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person certainly will not lose their reward. We often want rewards, but we fail to understand how they come. And in God's kingdom, this is how they come. Come on, are you here? You want the Lord to bring refreshing to you, he says, refresh others. Come on, are you here? That's why when I smile like this, he, most of you all smiled back. A man... (laughs) reaps what he sows, right? If you live by the sword, you're die by the sword, right? It's the same principle. Some people with their nasty, <laughs> I can't know. Well, listen, you're sitting there sowing that nasty attitude. Why don't you sow good behavior? Why don't you humble yourself and not be thinking about yourself and be thinking about the needs of other people and how you can help them. And in so doing, what are you doing? You're giving a cup of uh, cold water. 
And in so doing, you just did that unto the Lord. No, I did it unto this crazy brother. No, you did it unto the Lord. You see your mindset versus the Lord's mindset? He's trying to refashion your mindset so that when you look at people in the church that you don't like, you're looking at Jesus. Mm-hmm. When a culture only recognizes titles but can't receive from the position of the title, it becomes an external image-driven culture that seeks titles. You don't receive from a title, you receive from the position of that title. The title is external, the position is internal. The title is seen, the position is unseen. That is when people chase titles, it's a sign of great immaturity as it's God's, uh, God who places in the position. God gives position, man recognizes titles. Don't reverse the order. Do I need to say that again? God gives position, man recognizes titles. Don't you go and reverse that order. Again, Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. We, of course, already read, Jesus made himself. In other words, he humbled himself. That's in verse 7. Notice verse 9. Therefore, God. Notice that. Did you see that? Jesus made himself. God did this. Jesus did this. God did that. Jesus humbled himself. The Father exalted him. So verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. That's why when you seek to exalt yourself through chastened titles, it's not just a sign of immaturity, but it's a sign of your arrogance. Do I need to say that again? It says Jesus made himself. He humbled himself. God exalted. Therefore, God placed him at the highest place. That's why when you seek to exalt yourself through chasing titles, it's not just a sign of immaturity, but it's a sign of your great arrogance. Again, Matthew chapter 15, verse 26 and 27. This is that woman. He replied, is it not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs? He called her a dog. Yes, it is, Lord. He didn't say, how dare you, you nut. He said, yes, it is, Lord. She said, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their masters. She's calling him a master. Calls him Lord and then calls him master. What does she do? She humbles herself. and says, yeah, I'm like a dog. But guess what? You're the master. And I'm not asking for a loaf. I know you've been breaking bread and you've been giving it to the Jews and he and healing is flowing from you. And I know that all of Israel and I'm not an Israel, but I don't need you to give me a loaf. I don't even need you to give me a wonder bread slice of it. I just want a crumb because I know the crumb that you will give me will bring deliverance to my demonized daughter. Jesus stopped back and here we have Jesus now ministering. Are you ready for this? Outside of what he's called to the lost sheep of Israel and is now ministering to a Canaanite woman. Why? Because of that woman's faith. How did she display great faith? By bestowing honor. Let's end it with this right here. Actually, when Jesus heard this, he was what? 
amazed at him. This is the centurion. And turning to the crowd following, he said, truly, I have not even found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant, what? Well, here is what this amaze means. People marveled, thamazio, at miracles that Jesus worked at his resurrection. The crowd was amazed, thamazio, to hear the apostles speak in different languages at Pentecost. Sometimes thamazio refers to a negative reaction of amazement as when a Pharisee was amazed, thamazio, that Jesus did not wash before eating. So the meaning of this, marveled, is to wonder or to marvel. Are you ready for this? To be admired. Jesus actually admired this centurion soldier. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus admiring you through your faith in him? The meaning of admire, are you ready for this? Comes from a Latin word that means to wonder. Jesus was wondering like, wow, man, I admire this guy. Whoa, he's a centurion. He's a Gentile. I'm called to the lost sheep of Israel. And he's not even inviting me because he says, I'm so esteemed that I'm not even worthy to come to him. Oh, please just send the word. And he believes that even if I just sent my word, because that's what the Bible actually says, he sent his word and healed them. He goes, he actually believes me even greater than even the own Jewish people that I'm called to. Wow, I admire this guy. This is amazing. Of course he's going to get it. Come on, are you here? So Jesus, watch this, had amazement unto admiration. Is Jesus, again, amazed by you? Does he admire you? And everyone says. You've been listening to the Freedom House podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you would like more information about our house, please visit our website, fhus.org. Thanks again for tuning in. And please consider sharing this podcast with your friends and family. See you next time.